Good morning. Let us take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. I think without a doubt, we are seeing a world in which there's a lot of hopelessness. We are politically divided. There's social decay everywhere. Lines are being drawn. Every issue is a cause for war and tension. We are living in very difficult times, that is certain. And even Christians, or the ones who at one point took the label, are losing their hope. And so now you have Christians who are deconstructing their faith, tearing it apart because they're losing their hope. And they're left with nothing. And so the importance of our verse, the the passage in front of us this morning in Acts chapter 7, is that it tells us how to keep our hope, how to retain our hope as Christians. And this is what Stephen will answer for us this morning. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he has said this, he fell asleep. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is able to convict us and lead us into the path of righteousness and lead our gaze to Christ. And so we pray that this will be the end result of our time together, that we will love you more in the person, in Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, the Protestant Reformation was the spark that ignited many other fires across the world for the glory of God. It quickly spread into different places of the world, one of them being the Netherlands. And as it did, the Dutch Reformation was born. However, the Reformation in the Netherlands did not truly blossom until another movement appeared, one that came to be known as the Dutch Further Reformation. How many of you have heard of the Dutch Further Reformation? Hmm, interesting, okay. And this happened in the 17th and 18th centuries. What was unique about this movement was its emphasis on the importance of applying truth to the heart. This movement sought to bring the theology of the Protestant Reformation further into the soul of the Christians, hence the name Dutch Further Reformation. Theological precision, they said, without practical sanctification is dangerous. Good theology must always lead to further 
transformation of the heart. One of the theologians of this movement was a man by the name of Theodorus Vandergroh. And in an effort to be both theologically rich and yet practical, he preached a series of sermons focusing on the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a teaching tool that promotes learning theological truth through question and answer. Undoubtedly, one of the most influential documents of the Christian church. Here is the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer provided by the Heidelberg Catechism. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. As Vandergroh introduced his sermons on the Heidelberg Catechism, he made the following remark. Consider his words. He said, among all the religions and philosophies to be found upon the earth, the one that can yield comfort in the truest sense of the word and also fully comfort a man in the most wretched circumstances and sorrow, even in the hour of death, will unquestionably be true and superior. There is therefore but one true religion that originates in God. And the ultimate outcome, pay attention to this, and the ultimate outcome of all its doctrines is that it causes a man to look entirely outside of himself. To look entirely outside of himself, end quote. Apparently, Vandergroh knew something that many people tend to forget. Did you catch it? In case you didn't, here it is. While Vandergroh sought to apply reform, biblical hope deeper or further into the heart of his audience, he knew that the only way to do so was by leading their eyes away from themselves. Away from themselves. In other words, the theologians of the Dutch further reformation knew the key to spiritual maturity. Truth can only grow deeper into our hearts as we lift our eyes higher and higher into heaven because the source of all that is good is Christ and Christ alone. And where is he? He is in the heavens. Brothers and sisters, what we see in Stephen of Acts chapter 7 is a man who understood this very truth. And he understood it not only in life, but also in death. In fact, as we enter into our passage this morning, consider the following statement. Think about what I'm about to say. It is in times of great tribulation that the true source of our hope shows itself more clearly. You know why so many Christians are desperate today? Because they never had their hope where it should be. What sustains you when life gets difficult? Where do you run? Times of trial have a way of exposing the true convictions of your 
heart. Stephen is a great example of this. Here we see a man facing his darkest valley, death itself. And so we ask, where was his hope? One thing is clear by reading this passage. Even in his darkest hour, Stephen's hope remained outside of himself. Therefore, he had hope within himself. I have divided this passage into two main sections. First, we will consider our hope in life in verses 54 through 58, followed by our hope in death in verses 59 and 60. And I will finish with a few lessons of hope. Let's consider our hope in life, Christ's exalted place. Christ's exalted place. And let me begin with the obvious. Our hope springs from biblical truth. Having given a great spirit-led, Christ-centered summary of the Old Testament in which he presented Christ as the great and ultimate goal of all of it, and having confronted his Jewish audience with the truth of their religious hypocrisy, the men of this council are now giving full bent to their hatred against Stephen. So we read in verse 54 that they were enraged and ground their teeth at Stephen after he told him the truth of Christ. The grinding of the, or the gnashing of teeth is a vivid picture of a hatred so intense that Jesus described hell itself as a place where there will be what? The weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as I said in my conclusion to the series on the Ten Commandments months ago, hell will be hell precisely because it will be the perpetual breaking of the two greatest commandments. Perpetually. For all eternity, people in hell will be breaking the two greatest commandments. They will hate God and they will hate each other for all eternity. In hell, people will hate God and neighbor without restraints and this forever and ever. In a sense, these religious hypocrites are giving us a small preview of hell itself. Notice, they rejected God and they rejected the truth of God. They are not just gnashing their teeth at Stephen, but at God himself, just like they gnashed their teeth at the Son of God the Lord Jesus. Stephen's hope, however, was not rooted in the people's receptivity of the truth, but in the truth itself. Stephen did not lose his hope when the people rejected the truth, which is great news for us. Our hope does not come and go depending on what's going on in society around us or the world at large. Why? Because our hope is not ultimately subjective. Rather, our hope is objective. Our hope has an object. Now, let me be clear about this. By saying that our hope is not subjective, I am not saying that we don't experience hope within us. We certainly do. We do have a hope within, which is why Peter instructs us to give a reason for the hope that is within us. We can and we do experience hope experientially by the work of the Spirit in us. But when I say that our hope is not subjective, I'm speaking about the source of our hope. Ultimately, our source, our, uh, the hope stands in the glory 
of heaven. Our hope stands in the glory of heaven. Once again, let me be clear. Hope is a spirit-given virtue that we can and we do experience in this life, subjectively, deep within us. Don't let that escape your thoughts. If you are lacking in hope, you must pray for it. You must come to God and ask him to fill you with his spirit because it is the spirit who fills us with hope in our hearts. Stephen was full of the spirit, according to verse 55. The only way for us to know true hope is by the ministry of the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit. Remember that our salvation is Trinitarian. We are saved by the triune God. In fact, please notice in verse 55, we see all members of the Trinity. Stephen was full of the Spirit. And what did he see? He saw both the glory of the Father and who else? Jesus the Son of God standing on the right hand of the Father. But here's a question. Since God the Father is a spirit, what does it mean that God is standing at his right hand? Well, that is not to be taken literally because the Father is a spirit. He does not have a body. That reference to God's right hand is a common kingly practice of the ancient times. For example, when Solomon wanted to honor his own mother Bathsheba and exalt her publicly, what did he do? Well, he gave her a place at his right hand. And the message was clear. Besides the king himself, no one was more exalted than her. Likewise, but in a cosmic sense, Jesus has been given a place at God's right hand, which means that Jesus, the man from Nazareth, has been exalted to a position of supreme authority and power. And this, my friends, explains why Stephen called Jesus the Son of Man. The Son of Man. I'm going to ask in your, in your Bibles to turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Many people think that the title Son of Man is a reference to the fact that Jesus was a human. And even though he absolutely was a human in the fullest sense of the word, yet without sin, the title Son of Man refers to something much, much deeper than just his humanity. The title goes all the way back to the prophetic vision given to Daniel as recorded in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Now, there are many complexities surrounding the book of Daniel. No question about that. Uh, debates go back and forth as to what uh, is the meaning or precise meaning of certain prophecies. But what we read in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, seems quite clear and straightforward. Listen to these words. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the what? the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And notice this. To him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Amazingly, do you remember what Gabriel 
said to Mary when he announced the birth of Jesus. In Luke 1.33, Gabriel said to Mary, and of his kingdom there will be no end. There's only one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. There's only one who has an eternal dominion and a kingdom, Jesus, the one Daniel saw. He is the son of man. Therefore, the title indicates the supreme, everlasting, and comprehensive dominion, dominion of Jesus, the same who was mocked, ridiculed, humiliated, scourged, and finally killed on a cross and placed on a tomb, came out of that tomb in a human yet glorified body. And because of his finished work and his obedience unto death, God the Father exalted that man to the highest place of authority in all of the universe, second only to the Father himself, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 28. Jesus, the exalted man, is at God's right hand. He has all authority. And this, my brothers and sisters, this Jesus of Nazareth, this person, this person was Stephen's objective hope. Objective hope. What Daniel saw in a vision, Stephen saw in its fullness. Our hope, brothers and sisters, stands in heaven, unmoved. And he has all dominion and sovereignty. And he has a name, Jesus, the Son of Man. And he cannot and he will not be moved. In fact, I would take it as far as to say this. His authority is such... The authority of the Son of Man is such that even the stones that are about to be thrown at Stephen, even those stones were directed by his kingly and sovereign hands, not to spare his life, but to bring him home. So we learn an immediate and crucial, crucially important lesson here that we must never forget. The council the Sanhedrin was not in charge of Stephen's life. The council was not in charge of Stephen's death. Jesus was. The same is true of all Christians. When we die, our deaths are under the sovereign rule of Jesus, the Son of Man. And if you notice, in all of this, someone was watching. Someone was watching. Which leads us to our next point, hope testifies to those in darkness. As Stephen verbally expressed the glory of what he saw in heaven, the people of the council refused to listen, and they took him outside of the city to stone him, the Bible says. They stopped their ears. They stopped their ears. Why did they stop their ears? They could not accept the fact that the one they killed on a cross is now given all authority. They resisted. They hated Christ's lordship. I submit to you that the problems with our society and much of our own woes in our personal lives stem from the same fountain, a rejection of Christ's authority over us. People don't want to listen to him. People cover their ears when we say that marriage is between one man and one woman and they hate us for it. But Christ has the authority to tell us the truth about marriage. 
People hate the truth that life begins at conception and that abortion is murder. But who has the authority to determine these things? It is Jesus, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. People hate it when we say that God, that man is man made in the image of God. This is all rebellion against the Lord, my brothers and sisters. The rage against truth is still going on in our worlds. And so as people got ready to stone Stephen, in verse 58, we're introduced to Saul, whom we will see again next Sunday. For now, I just want to point out something to you. Stephen did not go unnoticed to Saul. We were going, we're going to find Saul once again, now as Paul, in Acts chapter 13, preaching Christ. Interestingly, when we get there in Acts chapter 13, we're going to hear that his sermon sounds very much like Stephen's sermon in Acts 7. Stephen did not suffer and die in vain. In his persecution, he had hope, and Saul was watching. But Stephen did die. And so the question is now, what was his hope in death? Which is our next main point. Our hope in death, Christ welcoming hands. Christ welcoming hands. Ultimately, my brothers and sisters, hope rests in the person and work of Jesus. Hope rests in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus, never in our circumstances. As Stephen was dying, he left us with, with two life-changing truths that we find in verse 59. The first truth is this. Jesus is one with a kingdom. He is the one with the authority. Where do I see that? Well, Jesus is the one who has the authority to receive Stephen's spirit because Jesus is the one who is over the kingdom. No one else has the authority to receive people into the kingdom. He, as the God-man, has the authority to receive his people into his kingdom. He has earned that kingdom, and he is the one over that kingdom, and he stands as the steward of that kingdom. It is his, it is his kingdom. So if you want to enter God's kingdom in heaven, you must know Jesus. There is no other way. It is his kingdom. That's the first truth. The second truth is just as important. Notice the certainty in Stephen's language. Notice the certainty in his language. Stephen did not say, Jesus, would you please let me into your kingdom? Would you please receive my spirit? He simply said, receive my spirit. There is certainty in Stephen's language. Why? Well, because the work of Christ is done. It is finished. This is also the reason why Stephen noticed what he did not say. Stephen did not say, Jesus, I'll see you after my time in purgatory. He didn't say that. Stephen knew his spiritual departure would be immediate. Not because Stephen was a saint in the Roman Catholic sense, not at all, but because Stephen knew his sins were forgiven in Christ, Stephen, through faith in Jesus, understood himself to be a co-heir with Jesus himself. He knew where he was going. But this is every believer's hope, not just Stephen's. Jesus is our hope. 
His work has made atonement for our sins. Therefore, we are forgiven. And his authority is over all things. Therefore, we have nothing to fear in a literal sense. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our only hope. So there is no purgatory for us. As Dutch theologian Hermann Bavink wisely said, and I quote, Christ's perfect obedience fully entitles the believer to eternal life. In a judicial sense, all the benefits of Christ are possessed by the believer himself now, yet their earthly pilgrimage ends only at death when they enter their home. Land. Did you hear the good news? Everything that is Christ's, everything that belongs to him is now yours by virtue of our faith and our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. As Stephen was dying, at that very moment, he saw a vivid picture of the soul-reviving truth that we read about in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, that our life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? It means that because of our union with Christ through faith, our lives cannot be lost. Our lives cannot be lost. Since we are one with the one who died for our sins, our sins cannot separate us from him. Since we are one with the one who rose from the dead, our death cannot separate us from him. And since we are one with the one who has all authority, nothing can separate us from him. Therefore, our hope leads to true love. Our hope leads to to true love. Notice what Stephen did at the end of his life. Even at the end of his life, as he was dying, he sought to imitate his Lord and Master, and he prayed for his very executioners. Only a true supernatural God-given hope can lead us to this kind of love where we pray for those who hurt us. The Christ-centered nature of Stephen's hope kept him from giving into despair, hatred, or any ill desire against his enemies as they were killing him. What can do that? Only a supernatural hope that is given by God himself in Christ. I remind you, my brothers and sisters, that Stephen was not a superhuman. He was just a man, but he was full of the Spirit. Therefore, Stephen died considering Christ because what is the ministry of the Spirit but to lead us further and further into our faith in Christ? He fills our minds and hearts with the hope of Christ. Now, before we transition into the lessons of hope, I want to bring to your mind something that a theologian said that I thought was very important. John Stott noted parallels between the death of Stephen and the death of Jesus. Consider this insightful comment by John Stott, and I quote, In both cases, false witnesses were produced, and the charge was one of blasphemy. In both cases, Stephen and Jesus, the execution was accompanied by two prayers, as each prayed for the forgiveness of his executioners and for the reception of his spirit as he died. The only difference, says Stott, was that Jesus addressed his prayers to the Father, 
while Stephen addressed them to Jesus, calling him Lord and putting him on a level with God. End quote. Christian, your life is in the hands of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. Are you consciously entrusting your life day by day to him? If not, here are a few lessons of hope that I hope will serve you well. Here are a few lessons of hope that we learn from Stephen. The first one is, no, no, Jesus always stands behind the cloud. Jesus always stand, stands behind the cloud. Obviously, Stephen was given a glimpse of Jesus that we have never had. It was given to him, but also for our benefit. How so? Well, because he, Jesus, is still there, and he has not changed in the least. It's been over 2,000 years since these events took place. Jesus has not changed in the least. The only difference is that we know what Stephen knows, but we know it by faith, not by sight. As the Bible says, we have not seen him, yet we love him. We walk by faith. So if we learn any lesson from Stephen's martyrdom, from his death, it is this. It is this. No matter how severe the trial, no matter how painful the circumstances, or how dark the cloud, we know who stands behind it all. The Son of Man. He's always watching upon you, both in your sweetest, sweetest victories, in your most comforting times, as well as in your darkest times. My friend, at times, if we are honest, our current place of residence in this world may get very, very dark, at times unbearably so. This is true indeed. But in the presence of the Son of Man, there will never be darkness. There is no darkness in the presence of the Son of Man. So give careful thought to the following truth. Even when your view of Christ is at times clouded by sorrows, trials, and tears, his view of you never is. His view of you is never clouded. He is there always, even behind the cloud. Consequently, you never suffer in secret. You never suffer in secret. Our suffering never goes unnoticed by Christ. Whether you are a missionary living in the midst of constant danger, whether you are a wife living under the fear of an abusive husband, whether you are a people living in an increasingly hostile and hopeless society, the Son of Man is always watching over his people. And he's never anxious. He's never nervous. He's never doubtful. He is Lord. Next, reflect. Reflect upon this. Our entire life is a witness. 
Our entire life is a witness. This is something else we learn from Stephen. When we think of witnessing for the gospel, we often think of speaking words, and that's perfectly true and proper. We must speak the gospel of Jesus, as Stephen did in the book of Acts chapter 7. But we don't often think of suffering as a witnessing tool. When we suffer and we go through trials, we might be tempted to think that what we do in those moments of suffering doesn't matter or that we are somehow entitled to respond in any way we want, pridefully or in anger. But suffering is itself a witness. Suffering was the stage upon which Stephen displayed his hope. Moreover, few things can be more powerful witnesses for the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ than when his disciples suffer with hope, when they suffer well, never giving in to despair, but always entrusting themselves to the one who is at God's right hand. So even if our society continues to change, let us never give in to despair, but let us live in hope, in the hope of Christ. Consider, next, consider, and this is from Samuel Rutherford, Christ's glooms, Christ's glooms are better than the world's joys. Christ's glooms are better than the world's joys. We could say that on that day, uh, Stephen received every painful blow by those stones. As bones were broken, as flesh was torn, he was stripped of everything, wasn't he? What could be worse than for a man to die alone while receiving the insults, the hatred, and the literal stones of his own people? But once again, and returning to the theme we saw on Easter Sunday, here is the triumph of the Christian. As Stephen was dying, he was reminded of what? He was reminded of his only comfort in body and soul, in life and death, his Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and that moment, the darkest moment of his life, that's all he needed, a glimpse of the Savior. He was given this vision of the Son of Man, the one of whom Daniel spoke. What a paradox. In his darkest moment, Stephen saw the brightest Light. Amazingly, dying in Christ is better than living in riches. Next, fix. Fix. What I mean by that is this don't turn your eyes away from Jesus. Don't turn your eyes away from Jesus. Never take your eyes off of Jesus. Let the history of Israel stand as a lesson for us. Remember what happened. As soon as they lost sight of Moses going up the mountain, they turned to Aaron and asked for an idol to be built for them before which they worshipped. As Stephen reminded us in Acts, in Acts chapter 7, verses 40 and 41, what is the application? Likewise for us, should you take your eyes off of the Lord Jesus, you will soon begin to seek after idols, idols that cannot satisfy, that cannot comfort you, that cannot sustain you, idols that will always disappoint you. 
And the less you look to Christ, the more you will begin to look for idols on that person, on that job, on that opportunity. But should those things fail, where would you go? No matter what is taking place in the world or in your life, keep your eyes on the Savior. Stephen did, and not even the greatest and the darkest time could overcome him. Next, remember, remember, hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. This is a truth that comes straight out of Scripture. Romans chapter 5. Consider verse 3 through 5. Paul says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Is this even possible to rejoice in our sufferings? Or is it an ideal? I believe it is possible if we keep our eyes on the Lord. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Stephen, on that day, his darkest day, was not disappointed. I can guarantee you that on on that day, humanly speaking, Stephen's worst day, it was simultaneously his very best day and his most glorious day, he was not disappointed. He entered the joy of his master. So my friends, let us press on toward that finish line and do so in hope. None of us who are eager to see our Lord Jesus face to face will ever be disappointed. Not one. And the darkness you and I may encounter in this fallen world will never ever compare to that glory to come. Because when we see Jesus, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. And so, yes, we do encounter disappointments in this life, very true. But brothers and sisters, the Son of Man has not abandoned you, nor will he ever abandon you. So we wait and we hope upon the Lord. We will not be disappointed. Next, rejoice. Rejoice. Jesus is God with us and for us. Jesus is God with us and for us. Herman Bavink again said this, and I quote, Knowing God is possible for us because God is personal, exalted above the earth, and yet in fellowship with human beings on earth. What a life-changing truth that God is in fellowship with us. We saw this with Abraham and with Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon. God came down and he made covenant with them. God is a personal God indeed. But in Christ, brothers and sisters, in Christ we have something Abraham could only see from afar. In Christ, God has shown us the true extent of his desire for fellowship and communion with us. In Christ, God became like one of us 
took on human flesh, fulfilled the law that we broke, die the death that we deserve, effectively removing the curse of sin, so that in Christ now risen, his elect people can be brought back to God with a fellowship fully restored. And all of it is possible only and exclusively because of Jesus, the Son of Man who is in the heavens. And so even if the entire world should reject us, in Christ we know that God himself is for us. Christian, God is for you in Christ. And finally, ponder. Here's a simple question. Are you living as one dying? Are you living as one dying? I don't mean to be depressing, but uh, we are a dying people. We are a dying people. Many people have woken up, started their day normal, and on that day they met their end. We are a dying people. After a lady almost died of a dangerous illness, Pastor Samuel Rutherford wrote this in a letter to her on September 19, 1632, and I quote, You are not ignorant of what our Lord in his loving visitation has been doing with your soul, even letting you see a little sight of that dark trance you must go through before you come to glory. Your life was near the grave. You were at the door, and you found the door shut and fast. Your dear Christ, thinking it not the time to open these gates to you until you have fought a little longer in his camp. Until you have fought a little longer in his camp, end quote. You know why you're alive today? You're alive today because God has willed that you fight the good fight of the faith just a little longer. That you fight the fight of the faith just a little longer. That you hold on to your hope in Christ just a little longer. This is why you are here today. The day will come the day will come. Not, we don't know when that is. The day will come when we will have to cross that river of death. It will come to us all. And when it does, Jesus will lead us by the hand. But until then, are you living as one whose time on earth is short? Your time on earth is short. Are you living as one who understands and knows I'm dying? But my hope is in Christ. How are you using your time? Are you serving the Lord? Are you using your resources for the spread of the gospel and his kingdom? Don't waste your life. This could be your last day. Use it for the glory of God. So I leave you with the words of Romans 14. And I want us to read it together as we bring our time to a close. This is a wonderful summary of the life and death of Stephen. Romans 14, 7 and eight, consider what the word of God says and hide this in your heart. Here's a summary of how Stephen lived the conviction of his heart. For none of us lives to himself. By the way, you're not the end of your own life. You're not the goal of your own life. You live for somebody else. 
For none of us lives for himself or to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to what? To the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether you live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to him. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for once again reminding us through the testimony and the life of Stephen that as Christians we have a Lord, one who purchased us through his blood. And now the same one, the same Lord who stands above the heavens is calling us to live for his glory. So help us this morning, Lord. Help us. We come before you as your adopted children. And in the name of Christ, we ask that you help us to confess and forsake our sins, to turn away from that which is evil, and to seek to live our lives to the glory of the one who died and rose again and is soon to return. So I pray, Lord, that you will help us to face the challenges and the trials of life with a hope that cannot be moved, with the hope that stands in the heavens, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And may all glory and honor and praise be given to him and to him alone. In his name we pray. Amen.